Now, the African slave trade was a great evil. For 300 years, Africans were transported on trade ships to the Americas through what's called the Middle Passage. So the ships would be loaded up in England with manufactured goods and they would travel to the west coast of Africa where they would then sell that and pick up slaves. They would then travel through the Middle Passage to the Americas where they would sell the slaves and pick up raw material like cotton and return to England. It was hugely financially rewarding for those people involved in the slave trade. Over 300 years, millions of Africans were transported from West Africa to the Americas and hundreds of thousands died on the way and so they were just thrown overboard. And so sharks started following the slave trading ships along what's called the Middle Passage and even today, sharks will cruise up and down that same route because for 300 years they had learned that's where the food was. The African slave trade was a great evil. And as you can imagine, many scoundrels were involved in this trade and sailors had a a reputation at the time of being hard-living and cussing sort of people. And one captain tells of a young man who joined his crew who was particularly bad. And in a culture where swearing was common, this young man was punished several times, not just because he used the worst words that the captain had ever heard of, but because he was making up new swear words that even the most experienced sailor, their hair would stand on end. And this young man had the habit of creating little songs, little tuneful songs, often derogatory about the captain, and would teach it to the crew who would sing them very happily out of earshot. However, on one such crossing, a storm struck as as a like the ship had never encountered before, and a large wave came across, and just where that young man had been standing a few moments before, a sailor was swept overboard. And he grabbed the shipmate, and they lashed themselves to the ship's pump. They manned the pumps by tying themselves and then manually pumping the ship. And during the worst of the tempest, the young man turned to the captain and said, if this will not work, then Lord have mercy on us. And finally, after long hours, the storm abated and the ship, though battered, was still sailable. However, the young man's own cry for mercy in the midst of great peril had a deep impact on him. He was grateful that he was spared the drowning that he had seen a shipmate and he wondered on the God that he had called on. This is a God that he had mocked openly in other Christians. And after a short time, he repented and asked Christ into his life. And he was changed. He wrote later <laughs> that the swearing took a long time to get out of his system. <laughs> he was so good at it. But he was a changed man. And the question is, why would God be interested in someone like this? Someone everyone else practically had washed their hands of. This wretch of a man, slave trader, cussing, debauched mocking Christians whenever he could. Why would God bother? Well, we're going to let this young man answer for himself. You all know his name? Does anyone know his name? Who? John Newton. And if you don't know his name, you'll know the hymn that we often sing. Amazing grace. 
how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. So we're going to open up this Ephesians passage in chapter 2, and we're going to ask three questions. And the first question is, why would God bother with a wretch like us? Why will he bother? And second of all, Lord, we're going to look on how we are saved. God bothers with us. How do we respond? How are we saved? And thirdly, we're going to look at what next? Once we're saved, what's next? And this rich passage in Ephesians chapter 2 will answer those questions and answer them well. So the first question, why would God save us? Now, some people object to the word rich in Newton's hymn that saved a wretch like me. In fact, they claim that it's too stern. It might apply to a slave trader a few hundred years ago, but doesn't apply to most people who sing this wonderful hymn in churches today. So they've rewritten the second line. That saved and strengthened me. That saved a wretch like me has been changed to that saved and strengthened me, which is true, isn't it? It's true. But it's very wrong to remove the word wretch because it accurately describes you and I before we met Christ. I mean, the Bible is clear, and we saw this last week in a particularly grim sermon that I preached on the first three verses of Ephesians. We were dead, dead in our trespasses and sin. The second thing we looked at is not only we're dead, but we were enslaved to the world, to the devil, and to our sinful nature. And the third thing is we were condemned already by the holy God. And this is the bad news that we opened up and explored last week. It's grim news. However, we needed to spend time with the bad news because now as we turn to the good news, the good news becomes so much more amazing. Amazing grace. And the good news after verses 1, 2, and 3 in Ephesians 2, the good news starts in verse 4. But God. Often in the New Testament, the grim news is followed by, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. By grace, you have been saved. And these verses help understand why God would bother with a wretch like you or I. And there are four qualities that are in this verse and also verse 7. Four qualities of God that tell us why he would bother with us. First of all, mercy is mentioned. It's mentioned once. Love is the second quality of God. It's mentioned twice. Grace is mentioned three times. And then in verse 7, kindness. These are the four qualities of God which enables him, that motivates him to save a wretch like you and I. Now to help open up these four qualities so we can better understand them, we're going to look at the parable of the prodigal son, which is found in, in Luke 15. Many of us know the story very well. The youngest son in the parable is indeed a wretch. Why is he a wretch? Well, he rebelled against his father. In biblical days, claiming an inheritance while the parent was still alive was basically saying, Dad, you're as good as dead to me. 
I want your inheritance now. It wasn't like bank of mum and dad, can we please borrow some money for the house? Okay, this is not what we're talking about. In that culture at that time, it was dad, you're as good as dead. I want my money. I want the fun times. Now, it was a farm. In those days, the oldest always got twice the inheritance of the other sons. So two-thirds would be reserved for the oldest son and one-third for the younger son. Imagine having a farm. Some of you don't have to imagine too much. Imagine if the next day you were asked for a third of that value in cash. It's pretty hard, isn't it? Friendly bank manager, didn't have them in those days. You're probably going to have to sell off some stock and some land. Anyway, the money is available to the son. So it's going to cost the family quite a bit. Not just money, but also reputation. This was a very shameful thing to do. And in an honor-shame culture like in these days, the whole community would have looked at that disgraceful son and in that family's reputation would have been smashed. This is the mess that the son is leaving behind. But it's nothing compared to the mess that he gets himself when he travels to a far-off land. We pick this up in verse 13. Verse 13 of Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey, a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now, for a Jewish person to be tending pigs was a very shameful occupation. And to be longing to be fed or to eat the food that the pigs were eating just showed what a miserable wretch this young man had become. Well, eventually, we're told in Luke 15 that the The young man came to himself, he came to his senses and thinking, well, even my father's servants are better treated than I am. So he decides to take a risk, travel home and ask to be taken on as a hired worker. And in this, he is appealing to his father's mercy. He's appealing to his father's mercy. He's insulted his father. He's deprived him of finances, created shame. And the best he can hope for is is mercy, no matter how slim. You see, if the father accepted the son's request to be a hired servant to pay off his debt, then this would be an amazing act of mercy, something he did not deserve. So the son decides, I'm going to take a chance, and he takes the long journey home where he hopes, longs, and looks for the mercy of his father. Long way off, the ever-watchful father sees him in the distance and runs to meet his son. And we see the encounter, wonderful encounter of father and son in verse 21 of Luke 15. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The son is saying, I am a wretch. I have nothing to offer you, father. But before he could go on and say, I want to be a hired servant, we pick up verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it 
let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. What a surprise. The son hoped for mercy, but he received much more. He received his father's love. You see, mercy alone would have seen the father set him up as a hired worker in the quarters with the rest of the hired man and pay him an hourly rage. Instead, love exalted the son to the right hand of his father. You see, it's when love and mercy meet that we receive grace. Do you see the difference? Mercy by itself is wonderful, but when you put mercy and love together, you get grace. And that's what the youngest son received here. Grace. And this is what this wonderful passage in Ephesians chapter 2 is talking about. It's all about grace. Remember, grace was mentioned three times, love twice, kindness and mercy once. It's all about grace. And that leads us on to verses 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Such well-known verses, and they deserve to be. Think about the Son as we read these words. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so no one can boast. Verses 8 and 9. And not only does this apply to the prodigal son, but it applies to John Newton. And it applies just as much to you and I. For it is by grace, wretches like us have been saved through faith. So this is God's motivation. Love and mercy meet together. And we call that grace. And with great kindness, our Heavenly Father extends to us this undeserved favor. Well, this brings us to our second question. How are we to respond? How, how are we saved? And of course, the answers are here in verses 8 and 9. And it's answered in two ways. First of all, what we do. And second of all, what we don't do. What do we do? And then something not to do. And so in the positive, we are to believe. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Believing. We accept God's wonderful offer in the same way the surprised younger son accepts his special clothes, his shoes, the ring on his fingers, the way he accepts the wonderful feast, but most of all the way the younger son accepts the love of the father. I mean, that's how we respond with gratitude and thanks. And this is by faith. By faith, a reminder, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, reminds us about faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. You see, unlike the younger son who had his father's embrace, we do not have our heavenly father's touch. However, we believe, and the Holy Spirit makes the love of God, our Heavenly Father, real to us. Unlike the younger son who had new clothes and a ring on his finger, we don't have any of that, but we believe because of God's word that we are adopted and dearly loved daughters and sons, and we believe we're rescued out of slavery to sin and death, and the Holy Spirit makes us real to us. Unlike the young son who tasted that wonderful barbecued fatted calf, it's getting a bit close to lunchtime, I won't linger, 
on how lovely that barbecued fatted calf must be. But we don't get to taste that, do we? However, every time we come to communion and take the bread broken and the blood shed, by faith, the Holy Spirit makes the love of Jesus more real to us. And finally, imagine the son as his father told very loud the servants these words. Imagine overhearing this as a son. To the servants, the father says, for this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And by faith, we believe God speaks these words to the angels when we come and believe in our heavenly father and are saved. This is my daughter. She was dead and she's alive again. She was lost and is found is the cry of the heavenly father's heart when any of us come to him and believe in Jesus. By faith, we believe God speaks these words over us and the Holy Spirit makes them real to us. And remember earlier in Ephesians, we were told that we were dead, very dead, not mostly dead, 100% dead. And these verses in 8 and 9 tell us how we can believe and become undead. We were lost, but now we are found. And this by faith. Faith. Faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross to make all this happen. And you may have noticed this, and I'd make no apologies, but this is my go-to verse when it comes connecting to faith, to salvation. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by grace you are saved through faith. Now that's the positive. We believe. But verse 9 tells us something that we should not do to be saved. And what we should not do to be saved is earn our faith by works. It's impossible to earn our salvation by works. Why? So no one could boast. We've been warned not to work hard to earn our salvation and not to boast because salvation, we're told, is a gift and it is from God. Now, this distinguishes the Christian faith from all other religions. All other religions will say, you must do this and do this and do this and then you will be right, maybe, with our religion, with our deity, with our philosophy. You do, you do, you do, and then you get to a certain standard. And if you reach that standard, well, you can boast. You can look down on those who don't meet the standard that you do. They don't put it as explicitly like that, but that tends to be the human heart. So you go to any other religion and they will say, well, you need to give to the poor. You need to come to our, our celebration worship services, whatever they look like. You need to um, study the sacred scriptures. You need to pray and you fast. All other religions will do that. And once you reach that standard, you're in and other people are out. It's all about what you do. You know, Christianity is unique. It is the only religion that says it's not about what you do. It's about what's been done. Done for you by Christ on the cross. It's all about accepting that grace, that undeserved favor by faith. Just as the prodigal son did nothing to earn his father's love or be welcomed back into the family home, we can do nothing to be adopted as dearly loved children. We can be, do nothing to earn God's favor that he would welcome us into his heavenly home. By grace alone, through faith alone, 
we are saved to Christ alone, to the glory of the Father alone. How do we know this? By Scripture alone. Those of us who grew up in the Reformed tradition know these as the five solas, the five solos. I'll read it again. By grace alone, through faith alone, we are saved to Christ alone, to the glory of our Father alone. How do we know this? By Scripture alone. And that's how we are saved. But what next? So God extends his mercy, his grace. Why? Because he is a God of love, mercy, grace, and kindness. How do we respond? By faith. We believe. But what next? Well, again, this passage in Ephesians is so rich. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, Paul switches metaphors here. Up until now, he's been talking about God as our father who adopts us into his family. But now he changes the metaphor where God is the master craftsman and he's in a workshop and he has all the tools that he needs and he's crafting a masterpiece. His inheritance is the light and it's you and I as a master craftsman, carves a slab of swamp kauri into a beautiful work of art, so our Heavenly Father is working on us. When we're saved, we're not a finished product. Well, you just have to ask our spouse or children, and they'll tell you. (laughs) What happens is, we are now in the Heavenly Father's workshop, and He is molding us and shaping us to be more like Jesus, to be that wonderful inheritance that we are, for him. And how does he do this? Well, we're told, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, that all makes sense, for good works. We say, well, hang on a minute. The verse before says that we cannot earn our salvation by good works, but you're saying that salvation has to do with good works. Now, there's a key difference here, and it's a difference that we get muddled up. And we'll go back to the sun because that will help us understand where the works is. On the one hand, we're warned against good works. On the other hand, we are to do good works. What's the difference? Well, imagine the youngest son. Imagine the morning after his return and the celebrations were long and joyful, but they're now over. What next? He's lying in bed and all the father's undeserved grace and mercy, his love comes back to mind. And so he thinks, this is a busy farm. I can help. I wonder where dad is. I'm going to find him and I'm going to give him a hand. I mean, that's a natural response, isn't it? And so the son jumps out of bed, gets dressed and hunts down his dad who's working on the farm and they spend the day working shoulder to shoulder on the farm. Now, what's the difference between that and the day before? The day before he came and said, I'm going to work on the farm and pay off my debt. And now he's saying, my debt is paid. I can't wait to help my heavenly father. Do you see the difference? The first is trying to earn our salvation. The second is a delightful response out of a heart of gratitude. Now, if you were the neighbor walking along, you'd say, oh, there's that rat bad young son. It's good to see him working on the farm. He's paying off his debt. Good on him. But that's not what it is at all. If that neighbor was to go and 
speak to the son, the son would say, oh, no, the debt's cleared. I'm doing this for fun. <laughs> you know, I'm doing this because I love my dad. You know, I'm doing this because I want to please my dad. And that's the difference. And Christians, all through the generations, we've got it muddled up. There's something in us that say, oh, I don't deserve this grace. If I work hard, then God will accept me. And then there's always a bit of pride because then you look at the person who's not working as hard and you put yourself above them and you put them down. This is what we do. And God's saying, no boasting. It's all about grace. Accept the goodness that I have done. Accept what Jesus did on the cross and out of a delight, out of a heart of gratitude, knock yourself out when it comes to good works. And until we understand this, we're always going to get muddled when it comes to grace and works. But isn't that a delightful image of the son one day wanting to earn his favor with his father and the next day the son who says, oh, my father loves me, how can I honor him? And that's what God is desiring for each one of us today. Not out of obligation, but out of a heart of gratitude and delight to serve him. So let's just pull this all together. Last week's message was brutal. <laughs> it was bad news. And I took no delight in explaining that myself and you, before we met Christ, were dead, enslaved, and condemned already. And that's the bad news. But once you understand the bad news, the good news is amazing. It's amazing grace. Look, if you don't understand the bad news and you hear the gospel, it becomes bland news. <laughs> you know, if you don't think you're a wretch, you know, if you think, oh, I'm okay, you know, I'm not too bad, I'm not an axe murderer, you know, all that sort of stuff. Then when you hear about Jesus, it's like, oh, okay, <laughs> and you move on. But when you understand your desperate need, like the prodigal, like John Newton, like many of us, then the good news becomes great and wonderful news. Amazing grace. Why? Because of God's mercy and love combining together in that wonderful word, grace, and the mercy that he continues to shower on us. Our response, well, humbling, we can't earn it. All we do is believe. And thirdly, we looked at what next. Our next, well, we're in the workshop. God's got his chisel and he's shaping us into the shape of Jesus. And he won't be happy until we reflect the love and grace of Jesus in our lives. And we do that by doing good works to honor our Heavenly Father out of grateful hearts. John Newton wrote, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did the grace appear, the hour I first believed." Now, some of you here today may not believe, may not have believed. This might be the first time you've heard the gospel. You might have heard it a hundred times before, but today, well, it kind of makes sense for the first time. Well, we're going to pray a prayer now. I'm going to give an opportunity for those folk who don't know Jesus or for this is the first time they've heard the gospel to ask Jesus in your life. Some of us have done this before and we're very comfortable where we are with Jesus. That's okay. It never hurts to ask Christ to be more real in your heart every day. I've got a couple of booklets here, the Why Jesus booklets, which are a wonderful and simple explanation of the gospel that you can take away and have a think and pray about. But we're going to finish now. And we're going to pray, 
And then I'm going to ask the music group to come and play a hymn. No guesses on what hymn we're going to finish on. But uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, John Newton expressed it so well in the simple title, Amazing Grace. Some of us have been following you for decades, and you know, it's still amazing. In fact, we're more amazed than we were 30 or 40 years when we first asked Jesus into our life. And we pray we will never stop being amazed. And there are some folk here, Lord, that have never asked Jesus into their life or never understood. And we want to pray for them today. If that's you, you can repeat after me these words. Heavenly Father, I'm sorry for the sins I have committed. Forgive me. But I believe, Jesus, you rose him from the dead. I believe he died for my sins. Jesus, come into my life. Show yourself to me. I want you to be my Lord. Amen.